What does it mean to be a man? Is manhood something that needs to be reorganized and rewritten? Is manhood under attack? Yes, all good questions. Um, I want to take you on a philosophical approach to this question. Not so much me telling you what my philosophy is, um, more so me taking you on a journey through what I see to be the different options philosophically on how to answer this question. And, and there's a reason I'm approaching it philosophically in, in this case, because, I mean, as I see it, I think there's three main options that you can have to both define masculinity, and then that's going to be prescriptive for then how you live it out. So how you correct it or how you fulfill it or how you perform it is going to be dependent upon the philosophical infrastructure um, of what you think masculinity or what you think gender, for that matter, is. And then that could give us some guidance on what to do next. Um, I think there's a lot of people who genuinely want to get it right. Like, there's a lot of people in this conversation where they're trying to kind of narrow down on which parts of masculinity are toxic and, like, what are the should-nots of masculinity? And and that seems pretty clear. There's a lot of conversation around the should-nots. Um, but it's harder to find prescriptions for what you should be doing. Like, what does proper masculinity look like? Like, when it's acted out, like, practically. And, and I think there's three answers to that question. I think people answer that question differently depending on how you construct it. So um, I'm going to do my best to do justice to each of these philosophical schools. Um, but you should know, maybe going in, I'm not like a trained historical philosopher in the sense of, like, I, I haven't been trained on these psychological schools and how they manifest. I, I'm kind of an amateur in that sense of trying to put all that together. But I did my homework and I, and I did my best here. But I am a trained philosopher in the sense of I'm a psychotherapist and every psychotherapist is a philosopher. Um, you might not know that, but that is the actually the activity of therapy is philosophizing together because what you're doing is you're bringing perhaps evidence-based psychotherapy. So you're bringing psychological insights and then you're contextualizing them within someone's life, within the realm of ideas and all of those have presuppositional, you know, like philosophies on what it means to be healed or what it means to live a flourishing life or what is maladaptive or what is um, disordered. All of that is philosophy. Um, and so there's there's a kind of, you could think of it, there's a Venn diagram here in just like the natural world of biology and correcting biological systems, but we're also in the realm of ideas. And so all of psychotherapy is philosophy. And so I, I've thought deeply about these different dynamics and how these ideas work themselves out into people's lives and and either contribute or don't contribute to flourishing for people and societies and all these things. So I have lots of thoughts there. Although my historical summary here of these different philosophical schools, I, I guess I'm going to do my best, but give me a little grace because that's not necessarily my area of expertise. So well, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. All right. Um, and as you're listening, remember, I'm not I'm not going to be like making a case for which one of these I think is the right one. Um, I'm going to be summarizing each one to, to the best of my ability, just as I perceive it. And then I'll be explaining why they conflict. But I'm not going to be in this podcast actually making a case for one over the other. So, yeah, let's do that. Um, but first, let's hear from our sponsors. And if you would like an ad free version of this podcast, um, you can go to my Patreon. Um, I have a link in the show notes, and in that Patreon, you'd also get access to monthly meditations that I make, guided meditations, uh, working through trauma, identity, all sorts of good topics. Um, so if you'd like to sign up for that Patreon, link in the show notes. All right, let's dive into some sponsors. I've seen how vitamin deficiency and improper nutrition can affect people's mental health, like not just for my clients, but even for myself, like when I prioritize things like nutrition and sleep and vitamins, I saw a huge difference in me personally. 
And, and maybe you're like me and you're trying to start into this vitamin and supplement world and it feels kind of intimidating, like there's hundreds of different kinds of vitamins that you could be taking, dozens of different brands. And so, you know, when I was looking for something last year, I, I really wanted to find something that was kind of easy, that was kind of like an all-in-one thing. And so AG1 is a powder that I landed on. And, and really, I reached out to them to be a sponsor on the podcast because I really like it. Like, it's 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals and whole food source superfoods and green vegetables, probiotics. And so, you know, if you want something that can give you more energy, something that supports your immune system, something that isn't just taking this big handful of pills, um, but, you know, is, is a little bit just more simple. And then maybe you're also like me because I'm doing, like, this anti-inflammatory diet, and so you need something that's dairy-free, gluten-free, GMO-free. AG1 really checks all the boxes, and so it's really the best thing I've found. If you want to sign up, go to athleticgreens.com slash Barker, and you'll get a one free, uh, one year free supply of vitamin D, and you also get five free travel packs with your first purchase. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Tracker. I'm really happy to be partnered with them. As many of you know, the role of nutrition and its effect on brain health has been a big focus for me this year. And people age at different speeds. People's mental faculties degenerate at different speeds. And so Inside Tracker is cool because what they help you do is determine something called your biological age. And then they match you with strategies and recommendations to slow down the aging process of your brain and your body to support your health. And, and they do this by analyzing blood work and DNA. And so what you can do is, is send them your blood work and they'll give you personalized recommendations informed by your body in particular. So if you want a personalized plan to boost your metabolism, to reduce stress, to optimize your brain health, to improve sleep, to sustain your health for the long haul, you should check out Inside Tracker. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Matthias. So here are the three camps of masculinity as, again, as I see it. So the first one would be the postmodern theory of gender. Um, so postmodernists would say that gender is a story, and it's different than your biological sex. Your gender is not something that's determined by your chromosomes or your genitalia, but rather gender is in connection to your identity. It's something that emerges through self-discovery. Um, but we live in a world or instead of being encouraged to explore who we uniquely are in reference to our gender, we're, we're instead handed a script of what it means to be a man or a woman. It's a role that society expects us to play. And this script is pushed on us from a young age, right? It's assigned to us at birth. Like, and this script contains rules about what it means to be a man or a woman and what behaviors or attitudes allow you to ascend into being respectable or a desirable man or woman and what would be shameful for a man or woman to embody like for example for a woman uh, to be assertive or blunt or dominant with one's desires that would be met with criticism right like you'd be called high maintenance or, or crazy and these criticisms within a postmodern conception they're part of an overarching narrative or a meta-narrative is another way to say that about what it means to be a woman the script is something like um, that, that women ought to be submissive and beautiful, gentle, elegant, uh, sexually available, right? And to rebel against this script would be to violate what it means to be feminine. And similarly, for masculinity, to be overly emotional or weak, right, as a man to be met with criticism. And, and you wouldn't just be met with, like, criticism, like being called, like, a chicken or a wimp or something. Like, you'd be called effeminate insults, Right. Like, either directly, you'd be called, like, a little girl, or it'd be implied that you're being feminine. Like, and that would be shameful, right? That'd be shameful to, to violate the script 
of being physically strong and dominant or successful, competitive, financially ambitious, intellectual. And, and if you would fail at any of those, then you would descend into the shameful category of being feminine. Hmm. And so the obvious problem with all this is like not all of us fit in these scripts, right? And in the process of self-exploration and coming into a deeper understanding of who we are uniquely, we undoubtedly find pieces of us that don't fit in this script. And it seems like society is organized around these scripts and reinforces very specific patterns of gender. And the question is like, why? Why is society built that way? And well, there's been a lot of academics who have explored that question, why? So, you know, when postmodernists really came on the scene in the 1940s and 50s thinking about gender, there was already a lot of activity in the, in the political sphere from first and second wave feminism. And really, in order to kind of understand how postmodernism um, construes masculinity, we have to look at how femininity was construed, because really that's where the conversation started to take place, was in a really a critique and then an evolution of feminism. So, so you have a fight for women to be able to to be able to own their own property and to be able to vote. And there's campaigns for prohibition. There's reform of divorce laws. You have the advent of birth control and and women entering the workforce. So, so as a society, you know the script of what it means to be a woman is undergoing construction already, right? But then you have feminists in the 1940s and 50s, and they're starting to play with postmodern ideas, like uh, like what if what if access to the workforce and law reform isn't enough. Like, what if the problem goes way deeper than just overt sexism and misogyny? Like, what if there's a more covert game being played? Like, what if the entire story around gender needs deconstruction? So you have Simone de Beauvoir's work in the late 1940s, and she really started to point out some of the script around what it means to be a woman and how it's fundamentally tied to inferiority. So her work, uh, Second Sex, she makes the case that really throughout all of history, women are thought of as second to men, inferior to men. Like she referenced philosophers like Aristotle, who argued that um, uh, women are, quote, female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities, end quote. And, and Thomas Aquinas, who referred to women as, quote, imperfect men, unquote. Beauvoir made the case that it's not just that women are oppressed, it's that the category of woman is an oppressive category. Like from the very beginning, the only reason we have the category of woman is to make the distinction of who is inferior to whom. Or in other words, the scripts about man and woman, they were written for one purpose, to keep women subjugated to men. And she was really the first theorist also who named this um, sex-gender distinction, like I was, I was talking about earlier, um, that sex is in reference to biology, but gender is in reference to social identity, right? So, so uh, you know, as time goes on and these theories develop, you have people solidifying these thoughts later, like, uh, like Candace West and Don H. Zimmerman's work, Doing Gender, and the work of uh, Judith Butler, happening all around kind of the 1980s into the 90s. And then all this is kind of leading up to this crisis in feminism, in the 1990s between some feminists who see womanhood as essentially tied to biology and postmodern feminists who believe that the category of woman is just a social story, a social story that was written for the purpose of keeping men in power. So, so this crisis in the late 80s, 90s, um, this, this philosophical fork in the road that emerged within feminism, like you have cultural feminists 
that believe that bi- the biological experience of, of things like puberty and the menstrual cycle, giving birth, that those are experiences that are unique to womanhood. And, and there's essential aspects to being a woman, like as a class, like women contain unique forms of knowledge and wisdom that are exclusive to womanhood. And, and women possess unique qualities of, of nurture and strength that are all their own, that don't belong to men in the same way, in the same sense. But, but the question arose like, well, does that invalidate the lived experience of trans women who, who might not have the same biological experiences? And that also creates some like problematic heteronormativity because like if being impregnated by a man is an essential experience of womanhood, then what about lesbians, right? So, so you have this split in, in feminism, even within postmodern feminism, but, but, but really just for the sake of clarity. So, so there's, there's an adoption within the majority of postmodern feminism of scholarship and queer theory. And this was, this was scholarship coming out of the gay rights movement, coming out of um, the AIDS epidemic that was really starting to, again, really understand the role of gender and the role of sexuality in the intersections of power and how all those things were mixed together. So, so moving into like the 2010s and the 2020s, there's been a tremendous amount of activism behind creating a world where people don't feel bound by the scripts that they were assigned at birth, either in regards to their sexual orientation or their gender. And we want to create a world that it, where people can express their identities without, without shame. And dismantling oppressive systems, shutting down discourses that reinforce problematic and oppressive scripts of masculinity or femininity, that really comes to the forefront as kind of the action step in postmodernism. Um, because these scripts, they were written in patriarchy, and they uphold the patriarchy. And so they need dismantled. They need deconstructed. And so... When it comes to the question of what does it mean to be a man, maybe it means to question the meta narrative, right? Like to critique and to deconstruct the narratives that have been passed down or assigned to us at birth about masculinity and to rewrite a story of what it means to be a man that extends past like these rigid definitions of strength and competitiveness and dominance and, and includes perhaps like deep emotive and vulnerable and stereotypically feminine attributes as well and it's not it's not the case like don't misunderstand me that like that dominance is like bad and we need to go to the opposite end of the spectrum it's not that like dominance can be good and um, like in consensual sexual exploration dominance can be delighted in and explored like that's fine but but perhaps rewriting the narrative of masculinity looks like um, creating freedom to move back and forth on the spectrum between masculine and feminine energy and being able to express one's identity in a way that prefers others, works to establish equity, that is anti-misogynistic, anti-homophobic, anti-transphobic, that, that contributes to a world where both men um, and women can be fully themselves without being shamed. So that's the postmodern conception as I, as I see it. Now let's talk about the, the modernist conception. So a modernist is someone who stands um, in the tradition of the Enlightenment. It's a, it's typically, but not always, someone who's a materialist. So someone who does not prioritize like uh, the activity of the supernatural in in day to day life. So they're not uh, particularly religious. They might be, but that's not maybe front and center. Um, they they don't gather truth from special revelation like a Bible or an oracle or something, or from tradition. They gather truth from scientific observation. 
they, they observe and then they cross-examine various dimensions of what they're observing um, in nature to get to truth. And so this is a philosophy, you know, driving like Darwinistic and evolutionary theory. This is um, instead of like the origin of the world being like six-day creationism or something. This is a philosophy like in medicine, for example, was skeptical that demon possessions were the cause for physical elements and tried to look for naturalistic explanations. That would be you know, like all the treatments we have right now for seizures and narcolepsy and schizophrenia, those all come from the idea that it's probably not a demonic possession. Let's see if there's a biological reason for why this is happening and treat it that way, right? So so modernists have a high value on rationality, on um, reason, on basing certainty on what they can observe. Uh, they, they would generally agree that, that really much of what we call masculinity and femininity is, is a social construct, kind of like the postmodernists would say. Um, like the idea of, of God coming down and telling humanity, here's what it means to be a man, or here's what it means to be a woman, and here are your moral obligations as a man or woman, and or as a parent, or, or as a spouse. That wouldn't jive with, with a modernist, right? So a modernist is going to say, sure, different cultures construct masculinity in different ways to serve their ends, perhaps, but, you know, maybe even to serve the ends of those in power, uh, political or religious or, or otherwise. But but there's a biological dimension to masculinity and femininity that is essential. Uh, modernists believe that there are two biological sexes in the human species and that um, they're, they're different, not just in their genitalia or their chromosomes, but also in child development and in their personality and in their temperament. So essentially, your brain has differences depending on if you're a man or a woman. So one of the biggest citations that people would make in defense of temperamental differences between men and women is the meta-analysis performed by Costa and colleagues in, in 2001, um, where they looked at surveys of like 23,000 men and women responding to questionnaires about uh, their own personalities. And the sample of people um, taking the questionnaire were from 26 different cultures because the scientists wanted to know, okay, are these things that are just different between men and women, uh, you know, temp temperamentally, like regardless of culture, or were these bound to culture? So that's why they included people from lots of different cultures. And the results suggested that men on average, and, and on average is important there, um, because here's the thing, like with, with all this data, any one man or woman could not align with one of these results. But when we're speaking of 23,000 people generally, men rated themselves, um, well here, I'll just, I'll just read you a part of the abstract here. Um, Women, so this is a quote from the abstract, uh, women reported themselves to be higher in neuroticism, agreeableness, warmth, and openness to feelings, whereas men were higher in assertiveness and openness to ideas. Uh, contrary to the predictions from evolutionary theory, the magnitude of gender differences varied across cultures. Contrary to predictions from social role model, gender differences were actually more pronounced in European and American cultures in which traditional sex roles are minimized. Okay, so that last that last part's important there. So what they're saying is, not only did we find that there's differences between men and women in their personalities, in their temperament, but those differences were more pronounced in cultures that were more egalitarian and progressive. Like cultures that had high priorities around women's rights and inclusion and, and whatnot. And a modernist would, would kind of use this as a proof against the postmodernists and say, hey, so Here's the thing, all these progressive values, they actually don't make men and women more similar. So like when you give men and women free choice, you make a society more equitable. Men and women don't make the same choices, and that's what you would think, that once all the scripts are kind of tossed away, that people would, you'd have more variety in choices. They actually make the opposite case, where 
when men and women get to choose, they actually predictably choose different things, and more so in free countries, and more so when uh, there's progressive values and when men and women are able just to kind of, you know, they aren't bound by scripts, you just let them choose what they want to choose. They, the differences are greater. Now, a postmodernist would respond to this in a, in a variety of ways, but here's perhaps like one postmodern conception, and this is borrowing a little bit from Marxism as well. But what one might say is, well, listen, the patriarchy actually gets more and more covert. So even though society t uh, trends towards progressivism, and even though society may look like there's lots of equal rights, and hey, you know, like women have voting rights, and they can own property, all these kinds of things, the patriarchy in response to this actually becomes more and more subtle and actually more diffuse within a society. And so it's, it's more present, actually can become even more, some people would argue, more pervasive in progressive societies because it's not as obvious. You can't just spot it and call it sexism or misogyny. It's, it's in the subtleties. It's in the microaggressions. It's in, um, yeah, in the systems. And so what a postmodernist would say is that it would actually be expected that on the surface things would look progressive on the surface things would look like hey women are getting equal rights but this is actually just positioning of the patriarchy to keep people happy and that's that's a that's why i call it a marxist idea that's that's pulling off of the idea of the superstructure and that's that a class and power is always going to be spinning things around and maybe giving the proletariat just enough like kind of putting forth this propaganda to keep the lower classes settled and even you know seemingly happy on the surface so that they can maintain their power and and i, I don't want you to misunderstand it's not so much that like men are scheming there's this conspiratorial like you know it's their intent to kind of be deceptive it's more so that the script that's been handed down it's not just handed down to individuals it's handed down or i should say it's baked into a society it's baked into systems and, and you might think well, what do you mean baked into systems and essentially the idea there is like the patriarchy wrote the rules to the game that we're all living by. And again, like we said, gender is the organizing feature of everything, right? So um, the patriarchy is pervasive in every domain of life and all the rules are written, the script is written so that men win at the end. Like in every sense, men maintain their power. And so the, the proposition is that you know, as societies get more progressive, the script gets more complex and more subtle and sophisticated to keep men winning. And even if it looks on the surface like, oh, women are gaining more autonomy, women have more free choices. It's only that there's small compromises made only to keep the status quo, to keep everyone happy and to keep men in power. And so if you wanted to be against that, if you saw that as an affront to a flourishing society, you want to advocate for the, not just the rights, but the flourishing of women. It's not enough to simply just not hate women. You have to look internally and you have to see, are there ways in which I'm playing the game that keeps men in power indirectly? It's not about my intentions. It's not about me having this deep-seated hate of women. It's about, am I playing the societal game that is keeping men in power? And if I am, I need to educate myself. I need to understand my own complicit you know, actions in that game, and I need to fight against the game. I need to be anti-misogynistic. So that's the conception. That's the diagnosis and the solution. So a modernist would hear this and be like, okay, um, interesting theory. Prove it, right? Because a modernist is big on observable data. A modernist wants to be able to see all the different factors and how they're intersecting and, and be able to derive truth out of observation. And so then a postmodernist might say, well, look at the inequitable systems of our day like look at you know uh, the people who are richest in the world the people in positions of power within governments like how many of those are men and how many of those are women you know 
And then the modernist would say, that's not exactly a proof. Like, you can't just say, hey, there's not a lot of women in the STEM fields, for example. That, that means they're being kept from entering the STEM fields. You, you got to ask how many women are signing up to join the STEM fields. Like, if there's eight men and two women that apply for a job, what are the odds that the two women are going to be the most qualified for the position? Well, all things being equal, right? Like, 20%. So that's not misogyny afoot. It's just that not a lot of women are applying for those jobs. And I think the postmodernist would then say, well, why don't you think they're applying for the jobs then? And then the modernist would say, temperament. And then <laughs> we're back to where we started. <laughs> Well, and here's the thing, even the modernists, when, when thinking about these personality temperaments and the impact that they really do have, so like when we're talking about the differences between men and women, it's, it's important to point out that these are actual pretty subtle differences. Like it depends on the dimension that you're talking about, but like generally, like we're talking like five or 10% differences generally, which, which isn't a lot between men and women in these different personality spectrums. But here's the thing, it's also not nothing. Like if you look at the margins, like when we're talking about the most aggressive people in our culture, like the most brutal serial killers, the top 10 of those people are men. And when you look at the most warm and compassionate and empathetic and even people-oriented people in our society, the majority of the most you know empathetic and warm people we have in our culture the majority of those are women. Like look at uh, like therapists, for example, right? So to be a therapist, you need to be pretty warm and nurturing and people-oriented and all that. Uh, the American Counseling Association reported that less than 30% of the PhDs awarded in psychology are given to men. Um, and that's not even counting like like master's levels, counselors or anything. My, my guess is like 95% of counselors, master's level included, are, are women. Um, at least that's my personal experience too. Like, and a modernist might attribute that to temperamental differences, right? Um, not that there are cultural forces shaming men for going into the counseling profession, but, but you know, a modernist would say, hey, most men don't care to spend their days talking to people about their emotions and philosophical problems. And, and now, now, when you get into like research psychology or academic psychology, the proportion of men might spike back up. But, but yeah, like, like my first job as a therapist, for example, I was. Um, in an office of 14 women, and I was the only man at my counseling office. Uh, my cohort, my master's program for school, I was the only man in my class. And so, uh, you know, the question is, is that because counseling as a field, like, you know, the patriarchy essentially, you know, constructs it so that men don't feel comfortable entering to that field, that they would kind of, in a sense, be betraying what gives them the prestige or what gives them the power and um, in their culture? Or do they just are they just not interested in it? Like they, that's not what they prefer to do and do making demarcations around men and women in that um, sense make sense. And a modernist would say, yes. So you can see the differences there. A postmodernist would say, no, that's indicative of like, you know, a script where men don't feel like they have permission to enter into a job like that. And then a modernist would say, no, they don't enter into a job like that because they're just not interested. And that's okay. There's differences between men and women. So, all right, so that's that's how a postmodernist would disagree with a modernist. They, they kind of perceive those differences, of course, differently. <laughs> There's a third category. Um, the third category is what I would call like the theist or the traditionalist. And this is kind of a hard category to to put together because there's so many different religions and cultures in the world. So give me a little bit of grace here. But, but generally, a theist or a traditionalist, um, you could think of them, this, I don't like this term, but... Um, but it could have some utility here. You could think of it like a pre-modern perspective. Um, that's not totally accurate because, of course, there's people who are religious that have been through modernity and are experiencing post-modernity right now, and so it's, it's probably a category all on its own. But for the sake of like a clean-cut 
organizational structure. We're going to say we have the postmodernists, we have the modernists, and then we have the pre-modernists or the religious folks, the traditional folks. And in the pre-modern or religious uh, conception, the goal is to fulfill the moral and ethical obligations beset upon you as a man or a woman by your culture or your deity or your ancestors or tradition. Like, like you're endowed with particular capacities and potentials and, and roles and responsibilities as a man or woman. And rather than it just being limited to pure optimization, like in modernism, you ought to handle these domains morally. You ground them in, in good tradition as dictated by the particular religion or culture. Like, like things can be progressed, but not at the expense of what's good, right? And, and the self-identity, when we think about, okay, who am I? Who, is, who am I really? Um, you know, whether we're talking about gender or anything else, you don't find that by internally exploring. It's, it's not found by peeling back all the layers of society and cultural expectations to find this authentic, unaffected, pure self. In, in pre-modernism, man doesn't see cultural rules as contaminants. Um, it doesn't see societal expectations as a burden, but rather it's more like a garden bed where something can grow. The pre-modern man sees culture as just patterns of his family. That's, that's all they are. And, and to say that you're weighed down by society's expectations would be like saying that you're weighed down by your family. Um, and, and becoming who you are, it's embracing your own unique and beautiful contribution to your family. Like pre-modern man is collectivist, right? He embraces an identity that's woven into everyone around him and into God or nature or the universe itself. Like, like there's an idea in union th um, theory around the animus that, that the arc of manhood is moving from not just leveraging physical power or intellectualism or savvy uh, for the sake of one's own agenda, but maturing into the kind of man who takes it as his personal responsibility to make sure the world around him flourishes and he leverages any sort of strength or any sort of intellectualism, any sort of advantage or privilege that he has for the sake of the world around him. Um, there's, there's a lot of language around essentially volunteering to father the world, to take on the burdens of those around him out of a heart of love like a father would have for his family. The pre-modern man isn't inward focused, he's outward focused. The pre-modern man is called to explore something entirely outside himself, God, or the culture, or the tradition, that is his identity. It's pretty different. Now obviously there's exceptions. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of religions, so, so you know, some religions aren't locked into this binary of man or woman, right? Like there's indigenous cultures, for example, that take on the conception of like two-spirit, where, where both masculine and feminine forces can embody people, but but it's not it's not characterized like like uh, postmodernists, right? Because it's it's not a script. It's not socially constructed. It's it's still connected to an essence. Like there's something spiritual or um, material about it. There's still something essential about it, perhaps. Um, and I'm sure that that point looks different depending on which culture and which characterization we're talking about. Um, and there's also, there's also Eastern traditions that really do emphasize the self entirely and, and, and would characterize this whole thing pretty differently as well. And it's less about maybe submitting yourself to God. It's more about realizing that you already are part of God or, or that the self is illusory, right? Um, and, and Abrahamic religions, 
there's a story in the book of Genesis where God tells Adam to cultivate the ground and and there's and there's an instruction to organize the ground for particular purposes like the ground is full of potential and he's organizing and and labor to yield specific results right like you need to pull up some plants like we call those weeds <laughs> right um, in order for other plants to grow and so it's an act of organization to to specify what the raw earth is meant to yield. And, and it's kind of unique that, that God would both give man kind of that raw earth and then the permission to alter it the way that man sees fit. Um, so, so then the story evolves and woman is made and, and to partner with man in this task of cultivation. And after man sins and is fallen, then the work becomes strenuous and painful. And God tells man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and this isn't just an instruction to have a lot of babies. Like, if you think about what's really happening here, there's there's an expansion of that original instruction. Like, they're about to produce a family, and a family is going to grow into civilizations. And so, the expansion on that original command would sound something like, go and cultivate the ground, and now cultivate culture. Organize and specify the kinds of things that grow in both. And in this new world, with good and evil, make sure... What's good grows. So pre-modern man, his identity is really wrapped up in his instruction from God, his instruction from his culture, his, his whole cultural or familial reality. And it's not just a matter of internally looking inward and discovering or, or even optimizing capacities. It's, that, that would be a small percentage of, of what a pre-modern man would see as as his gender or even his identity as a whole. Um, it's a lot more than that. So, I mean, you can already start to see that the pre-modern man has some obvious conflicts with modernism and post-modernism, right? So, like in post-modernism, the pre-modern man wouldn't agree that gender is socially constructed. It's, it's not just like a script. Um, but they would agree that there's deep corruption and oppression, like even baked into systems, right? Because, I mean, some pre-modern men believe in sin, and they believe that in sin that runs so deep that even the person who has the sin can't even fully comprehend how deep and, and pervasive it might be, you know. So, of course, that's different depending on the religion. But, yeah, so so generally, pre-modern man would agree, yeah, there's corruption, yeah, there's perverse incentives, of course, right? But they wouldn't they wouldn't characterize it in the same way that a postmodernist would. They wouldn't characterize it in a Marxist or postmodern way. And then they would also conceptualize the solution a lot differently. The solution isn't rewriting the script, the solution is actually realignment with the script, realignment with the culture, with the dogma, with the deity, whatever. It's, it's actually in realignment and repentance and, and recasting your gaze away from the self and onto the culture that the society at large is redeemed and renewed and put back to rights. That's, that's the conception. And so, but for the modernist, you know, the modernist's obsession with progression and optimization, like a Christian, for example, is going to be like, yeah, we need to be good stewards. We need to be wise. But they're going to be suspicious that that's going to be the thing that leads to human flourishing because people have maybe an ambition for progress, but not always collective progress. Um, even if they feign that they want collective progress, oftentimes people will prefer their own benefit over the benefit of others. And so that can't be the corrective force. It's just progress because when my needs conflict with your needs, it's it's human nature to you know to um, to prefer mine. Now there's going to be moral people out there who are going to notice that reflex in themselves and work to optimize it <laughs> to uh, to you know, prefer the collective good. 
but the religious person, especially the Christian, isn't going to have a lot of faith in that because it's in our nature to, to prefer the self. And that's why there needs to be an alignment with God because God's the redemptive force that changes my character and my um, selfishness. And I can prefer the other out of the love and abundance and motivation that's given to me by my connection to God. That's, that's considered the force powerful enough to instantiate that kind of change in a person, not merely noticing that it's a good and moral thing to do. That's, there's not a lot of faith in just the capacity for someone to want to be moral enough and that being the corrective force that changes a society. That's, that's not how, you know, a Christian would see it. And, you know, the obvious rebuttal there is that, well, hey, religious or traditional guy, that's just dogmatism that is really rigid, that just locks us into one way of living and being, and it doesn't really create a lot of variety. And the religious or traditional person would be like, yep, correct. And then and then the question is like, well, what if I have a personal experience that falls outside of the boundaries of what's prescribed, the boundaries of what's normal? Am I just exiled? Am I just outcast? Because that, that produces a lot of shame. Because what if I'm not strong? Or what if I don't want to be a husband to a wife? What if I don't want to be a father? Like, what if, um, what if my personal experience, my identity actually contrasts with this religious script that seems to produce a fair amount of shame? Um, how am I supposed to belong to this category of man when everything in me tells a different story? And, you know, for, for the modernist, it's, well, what, what do I do when I see that there's blaring errors in the religious script? Like, when obviously it's hindering progress. It's, it's, it's obviously, there, there aren't pragmatic reasons that someone should get circumcised or someone should not eat pork or someone should, you know, blank, blank, blank. Like, am I just supposed to turn a blind eye? Like, you're asking for this blind faith adherence to these religious dogmas. It's it's like I have to, you know, turn off my reason in order to keep this going. And there's a whole podcast to be had on, <laughs> I don't know, theism and atheism and agnosticism and philosophy. That's, we're going to keep this conversation focused in on masculinity here. So let's say that the primary complaint here is that creates a lot of shame. Um, I, I suppose the theist would respond in a couple ways. I mean, I guess it depends. It depends on the theist. Like, you know, it depends which religion you're from. And if you subscribe to like this, you know, kind of divine command theory thing or more of a virtue ethics lens, I don't know, this could have a lot of variety, but a potential response could be, well, hey, you know, there's shame no matter where you look. Like, like here's the thing. All shame is, is feeling like I don't belong. And feeling like when I try to connect meaningfully to the relationships or to the culture that that matter to me, I'm left on the outskirts. It, it's the emotional impression of that. It's the physiological reaction to that. And that is just innate to the human experience. That's not that's not just a result of dogma. That's that's everywhere. Like like modernism, one of the things that modernism gave rise to was was capitalism. That's where it came out of from the Dutch, right? And so, you know, capitalism for all its merits 
it does produce a fair amount of shame. It's, it's market shame, though. Like, have you ever tried to appease an algorithm? That feels a lot like trying to appease God. Like, capitalism creates that same dynamic where some people are in and some people are out. There's, there's certain things that are in desire for the market that people want, and then there's some things that aren't desirable. Not all art pieces, not everyone can make a living selling their art. You know, and so it's, it's not like modernism creates this shame-free world either. So in modernism, there's, there's a market dogma, and, and that target is always changing, what's in demand. And then in postmodernism, because everything is socially constructed, because all these things are just scripts, and because everything is 100% malleable, that means that any truth claim, any claim that something is right or wrong, is an artifact of one's culture or group, right? Because because what we're saying here is like everything's a script. They're passed down by cultures. These these scripts, these stories about what it means to be a man. These are culturally contrived, right? And so we need to rewrite the script. That means we're not trying to appeal to a real essence of what it means to be a man or woman. We're all just writing scripts. And so the process of relating to each other is not trying to find out what's the truth. It's relating these scripts to each other. And these scripts are an artifact of culture. So we're relating these knowledge claims, these cultural artifacts, these scripts to each other. And and that creates problems because then we can't evaluate if something is true or not. All we can evaluate is the relation between different cultural artifacts of knowledge and which one has power over the other. And... And that's why equity is the dogma that we're trying to fight for. It's just like, let's just make it all equal because the moment one has an advantage over the other, you know, oppression's happening. And so the religious person's going to be like, yeah, that looks like that produces a fair amount of shame on its own. Constantly evaluating if my positioning is adding to inequity or not, and then evaluating other people to make sure that they're not, you know, creating inequity or not, like... That, that seems like a game that would produce tons of shame. And so the religious person would say, hey, there's shame all around. I'm just being upfront about mine. Um, all of, there's, there's fences around all the family farms. Mine's just out in the open. And the postmodernist and the modernist, they likely wouldn't concede that they do have dogma, so they might argue on that point for a bit. Um, and I guess where the conversation goes from there is beyond the scope of this podcast uh, there's, there's lots of in- interesting trails there, though. So where does this leave us with masculinity? Like, we have three different options, right? We have a, we have a postmodern conception. Um, we have a modern conception and then a pre-modern or religious or traditional conception of gender. Um, so for the postmodernist, maybe the prescription would be that we need to rewrite the script of masculinity and decenter the, the meta-narratives that have led to such subjugation of women and minority genders and to uproot the patriarchy, to, uh, to write a narrative based in equity and in love. Um, for, the modern, for the modernist, the conception would be that you actually need to expand your competency within your capacity. Like uh, a high value for modernists is a progressivism. So it's actually leveraging the, the, the advances that we both have in like technology, within science, within just kind of like human knowledge and maximizing all of these things to create the mo- most amount of flourishing. Flourishing comes from maximizing um, potential, right? So with the imperative of modernism being this expansion, one ought to expand one's competencies to the very edge of your capacity. 
everyone has, has different limits and abilities and, and opportunities and strokes of luck, right? But, but the goal would be to make the best use of what you have. And a modernist would, would have a high value for creating equality and creating opportunity for minority cultures, for, for women, and so that everyone can expand their capacities to the fullest extent possible. Because when we have um, a market and when we have a society, when we have a, a workforce where every, all the talent is available, everyone has the ability to expand on all their capacities, then we have access to incredible innovation. We have access to incredible ideas and perspectives that, that you know, aren't within you know, the majority mindset. And that makes us more sophisticated and more diverse. And so modernists would have a high value on uprooting sexism and uprooting racism or any sort of like oppression because all that does is slow down the system of innovation and that for the modernist is like the key the key to a flourishing society is not necessarily abiding by the morals given by god or it's not not at all that it's um it's progressing towards human flourishing that's that's the goal through innovation for the pre-modernist or the religious or the or the traditional conception the goal would be to fulfill the moral and ethical obligations beset upon you as a man or as a woman by God or by your tradition, by your lineage. And, and pulling from Jung again, that, that the arc of maturity for a man looks something like moving from just brute power and intellectualism to a version of maturity that seeks to take on the burdens of the world around him and fight to make it better. Seek to cultivate that ground, cultivate that culture. Um, that the mark of a mature man is one who fathers the world. When there's suffering around him, he steps in and he intervenes. When, when there's someone in need around him, he wisely and compassionately orients himself towards that person for whatever they need. Um, there's, a, there's an uprightness, there's a moral fiber to a pre-modern man that he seeks to embody that expands beyond something like productivity or beyond even his own self. So wherever you fall in that lineup, the postmodern, the modern, the pre-modern man, um, I guess the prescription <laughs> at the end of this podcast is uh, go and, and be a man <laughs> for however, however that conversation strikes you, whatever leaps out to you go be a man so maybe a podcast for the future might be how would you have um, non-confrontational conversation um, from each of those positions to the other positions that might be an interesting conversation how how as someone maybe who's religious have a conversation with a postmodernist how how can i as maybe someone who's progressive that maybe has kind of a blend of postmodernism and modernism um have a conversation with someone who's religious or with someone who's, you know, strictly postmodern, you know, or Marxist, you know, so that could be an interesting, you know, conversation to, to how do we, how do we have conversations across party lines, you know, so to speak. But I think something we could all start with is, is maybe looking inward and then asking, am I internally consistent with my own convictions of what the good is? So am I someone who's trying to rewrite the script for the better, trying to be mindful of the ways that I'm, adding to the problem and can I, um, in my own actions and in my own way that I'm organizing my behavior, can I create a world that's more equitable and, and loving and kind and gracious for other people and creates access for people to their dreams? <clears throat> can I expand my own competence within my capacity? Are there areas that I'm 
I'm not optimizing the ways that I should. Are there things in me that I'm just being lazy about that I'm not being conscious of that I'm kind of letting, letting slip, you know, or uh, fall to the wayside? Are there things that, that I need to be paying closer attention to and before I criticize the world, before I kind of go after, um, you know, the optimization of other people or other institutions, can I look inward and say, there's probably something in me that can be optimized? Um, there's probably convictions that I have that I'm not holding to. And, and while it's easy to see the log in my brother's eye, um, maybe there's a bigger log in mine. And then I'd say for, for those who have religious convictions that have cultural convictions, um, are we paying attention to the context by which we are fulfilling our religious duties and our religious convictions? Meaning like there's, there's actually a lot of flexibility in how to be a man. And are we maybe unduly putting labels of femininity or masculinity on behaviors that actually aren't prescribed by our religion? For example, like something like um, strength. You know, there's there's some religions that really prioritize a man's art and warfare, like in our, our ability to be physically strong or combative. But there's others, like in like in my um, you know Christianity, for example, my religion, where physical strength and combativeness is not a value. Like in in fact, actually loving your enemy is the value. Like there's, I mean, maybe there's debate <laughs> amongst how that's organized. But um, are we perhaps slapping a religious or dogmatic? label over top of domains that actually don't have a religious prescription for them or in other words are we are we not doing a good enough job at drawing distinctions between this is prescriptive from my religion and then this is just native or normal to me and i'm quick to use the firepower of dogma to enforce cultural norms that actually are not prescribed from my religion and like take the christian thing with with violence, for example, actually there's a value of turning the other cheek and being slow to anger and being wise and not being quick to rush into conflict. Like that would be actually the behavior of a fool. And that there's, there's a time, I mean, depending on where you fall on this theologically, there's a time to assert boundaries, even to the point of violence, but that one would actually be slow to do that, not um, to be violent flippantly, right? So that's an example of a domain that could have cultural relevance. Maybe you grew up in a cultural, you know, milieu that, that says, hey, you know, um, the most combative, the, the most physically strong are the highest in the hierarchy. But that's actually not necessarily in al- alignment with your dogma. And you're using the firepower of dogma to enforce a lower tier, lower level cultural, you know, um, practice. That's where things can get abusive. When people use religious dogma or the firepower of religious dogma to reinforce things that are not in the religious dogma. So, Yeah important to pay attention to, um, you know, because we don't want to be abusing people or people to demarcate parts of their personality as insufficient before God um, when that's actually how they were designed by God. So, got to be careful there. All right, well, uh, let's leave it there. There's more conversation to be had, but I covered a lot of content. There's a lot of different trails there that we followed, so we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, always love to hear from you. If you want to send me an Instagram message, that's probably the best way. Or just leave a comment under the podcast. Um, love to hear from you. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Thanks.